0: As we come to God's word, let us also pray um, for the dedication of our tithes and offerings. Father, uh, you are the ancient of days, Uh, uncontainable. Uh, Father, you are eternal, infinite, uh, and also the one who comes and gives to us your creation. How amazing that is. So, Father, we realize that all things that we know, all things that we possess, all things that we have are because you have given them to us. And so we open our hands and give you praise, and we ask that you would teach us to be a people who reflect such goodness, that we would be a giving people, and a loving people, a generous people. So, Father, would you use our tithes and offerings in such a way to continue to show your glory Um, through the ministry of your word here and throughout the world. Father, as we come to your word, teach us, reorientate our lives, help us to hear, to listen, to see, and to believe uh, the great promises that you've given to us through your word. Humble us and empower us uh, for what you've called us to today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our passage of Scripture this morning is 1 John chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 28. We'll read through chapter 3, verse 3. We began uh, with these verses last week. We saw that John was really calling us to stop and to behold the extravagant um, love of God, to see how great this love is that he makes us his children. And because God is our father, we are at home with him. He is the one in which and from which we live our lives. And today, John's going to take us further into this reality of being his children. He's actually going to take us into the future. Uh, Indeed, we possess great privileges now, today, Uh, but this is just a foretaste of what is to come. So John, 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous— And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, Last week, um, I said that there were two kinds of people in this world. If you remember, I said there are those who as kids loved parent-teacher conferences, and those who are like me who absolutely uh, dreaded them. Uh, Come to find out I'm wrong. Uh, that's not the two type of people in the world, because John tells us in this passage that there are two types of people in this world. Uh, but this is the clarification um, of who those people are. There are those who know God as Father, and there are those who do not know Him. He'll go on in verse ten of this chapter to say, uh, to really uh, further clarify this, that that there are those who are are children of God and those who are children of the devil. And for him, for John, this is the reason why believers are not understood by the world. This is the reason why we experience various kinds of rejection and hatred. He says in the latter part of verse 1, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It did not know God as Father, And when John speaks of the world, he is is speaking of the, the evil humanistic system that is hostile to God. Both Peter and the author of Hebrews says of the believers in Jesus, those who know God as Father, that we are aliens and strangers in this world. This world is not our home. Our home is a heavenly one. It is one in which we reside with God, our Father. And yet, here we are, living here and now, surrounded by the competing uh, priorities of the world, a world that defines the good life in very different terms than the way in which God, God the Father says this is good for your life. In various places throughout this letter as John writes he speaks of what we might call the unholy trinity the world the flesh and the devil and this unholy trinity it is waging a war to reorientate our lives away from the father and for us this is a great danger because while we are children of god because of the redemptive work of christ still in this life, we are plagued by our sin. Our hearts, as Calvin said, are idle factories. We will so easily follow the world. We will so easily fall into the temptations of the devil. We are prone to wander. We'll drift and we'll fade. We'll be like the father who cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We live in this danger. And because of this war that's waged against us, we are always in need of the reorientating truth of God's Word. And the truth is, in His extravagant love, God, our Father— Reorientates our lives. He gives us His Word, His promises that we might see them, behold them, to reflect upon them, to, to grab a hold of them, to cast ourselves upon them, that our lives might be reorientated to Him. And in this passage, the Father reorientates our lives toward Him by giving us a vision of the future. He gives us a vision of the future, and it serves as an invitation for us to to imagine further just how extravagant this love of the Father truly is. He says in verse two, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We'll work through this verse he says, now and not yet. He uses these words to emphasize the difference between our position and privilege and experience of God, being God's children now and that future consummation that will be true when Christ comes. You see, we as believers in Jesus have only grasped the beginning of what it means to be a son or daughter of God. God. And this, this solicits within us wonder and praise and, and, and gratitude. But how much more is being his child still yet a breathless expectation of the future? See, if it's true of us now and it does this great thing within us, swells within us great praise and love for God, then, then can you imagine what it will swell within us? When we stand before him. Of course, this full reality of what will be is not made exhaustively known to us. And John says this. He says, what will what we will be has not yet appeared. Or, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You see, much still remains veiled to us. I mean, God has promised us a future. He's inspired us with it. But we need to understand that his promise is not to be confused with an exhaustive revelation. We need to be careful when we think about the future not to wish that we had more than what God has already given to us, because it leads us down a dangerous path in which we create um, an imaginary world that God has not said is the true one. Burkhauer, a theologian of some note, says this How often wish gives birth to a conviction that can only result disappointment. You see, we need to understand that ultimately, as we think of the vision of God, we think of this future, the vision of God can only be known fully as we're in the vision itself. Right? We can only know it when we live it fully. But that doesn't mean that it does not help us today, right? Because God has deemed it sufficient, we have all that we need from the Father. All that we need to have our lives reorientated. All that we need that we might be inspired to further love for God and further trust in his goodness and further hope in this future of his great appearing when he comes again. And when he speaks of this appearing, of course, we know from the context he's speaking of the second coming of Jesus— And this appearing, he uses these words, appeared and appears. These are, uh, uh, this is a public display. It's something that is not veiled. It's not hidden. It's not something that's done in a corner. But it's, it's openly shown for all to see. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It will be open for all to see. At his ascension, the scripture says this, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go In heaven, it'll be open for all to see. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. See, at his appearing, all will be made clear. For those who do not know Him, they will mourn, because what they will see is the coming of a great judge. But for those who do know Him, we will rejoice, because what we will see is the coming of our great Savior. It will be open for all to see. And what we will be, will be open for all to see. What we will be, as John tells us, is that we will be like him. We will be like the perfect son of God. Think about that. That's remarkable. We'll be like Jesus. Now, when we speak of likeness— we speak of spiritual unity. And, and when I say spiritual, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear immaterial, right? When we speak of being spiritual, we, we are speaking of being fully dominated by the Holy Spirit like Jesus. You see, our likeness with him is not one of essence so that we somehow become equal with Christ. Our likeness is one of quality. It's one of quality, that will be like him in holiness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Ephesians 5:27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And Jude says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, will be like him in holiness. But like I said, it's not to be immaterial. We'll also be like him in his bodily resurrection. Philippians 3, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Romans eight eleven, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it has raised a spiritual body. will be like him in holiness and in his bodily resurrection. And, and, and this is why we, for our profession of faith, we read from these answers in the Westminster Confession, these questions of what, be- what benefits do we as believers receive at our death and also at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? And we do this together, and it's not, what I say here is not to lower at all the goodness and the glory that awaits us at our death in this, this state in which we live, disembodied, uh, but we live present with the Lord in the fullness of his presence, at rest in him in holiness. It's not to lower that at all, but it's rather to add to it See, the highest state of our existence as believers is not as as a disembodied soul um, in our death, but it's in our final resurrection. It's it's being raised up bodily at his coming and the consummation of at his work, and in that resurrection, we are made to be like him in his Resurrection. And then John goes on to say something that, for me, I find even more remarkable than the fact that we're going to be like Jesus. He says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Think about that. We will see him as he is. A missionary once reported um, that when native converts... Came to this passage of scripture, a scribe laid down his pen, and he declared, "No, no, it is too much. Let us write. We shall kiss his feet." You see, we might, you know, throw shade at, at the at the at, at, at the way he thought about his work as a scribe and biblical translation, but we have we have to be impressed with the depth of his understanding of what John was saying. We will see him as he is. Can you imagine that? Throughout the course of history, Christians have wrote and spoken and longed for what is called the beatific vision, the blissful, happy vision of God in glory. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, he spoke of this vision of God. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know fully, even as I have been fully known. In Revelation 22, the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face she so will see him as he is. Now part of the reason this is a remarkable thing is because it brings up a number of questions. <laughs> and those questions first is, isn't God invisible? I mean, how is it that the natural can see the supernatural? And the second question is, doesn't Scripture tell us that no human can see God and live to tell about it? So just briefly, so the first question of God's invisibility. John, uh, in his gospel, does say that no one has ever seen God. And he's going to say that in this letter in chapter 4, verse 12 as well. Um, Paul in 1 Timothy says that God is invisible. He alone has immortality. He dwells in an unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. So here's what we need to understand about God's invisibility. His invisibility is an essential eternal attribute, right? God, as he is in himself, and that's important language, as he is in himself from all of eternity is immortal, invisible. But this does not mean that God cannot be seen, but only that he, in his sovereign and his gracious choice, chooses when and how and where and to whom he makes himself visible. You see, God cannot be seen by a creature in himself. God in himself cannot be seen by a creature because the creature is not God, but man can and does see God because God gives him the revelation He makes himself visible to him. And so in Scripture, we have these, these visions of God in which man sees something of God. And these revelations are something we call theophanies. And, and that just means these visible manifestations of God to man. And what we need to understand about a theophany is that they really are true, real visions of the Almighty. Right? They're, they're a real vision of the Almighty, but it is not a vision of God as he is in himself. It, it, we don't see God as he sees himself from all of eternity, if, if you will. Right? We see God as he's revealed himself in relationship to us. So examples of some of these theophanies. Um, God manifested Moses Manifested himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus three. At Sinai, Moses and Aaron, his sons and, and seventy elders went up to the Mount of Sinai and, and, and the scripture says they saw the God of Israel, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. There was a time when Aaron and Miriam opposed Moses and his leadership, and God came to them and defended Moses, saying that my servant beholds the form of the Lord. Gideon in Judges 6 saw Yahweh face to face. Samson's dad saw Yahweh, and he said, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Isaiah was completely undone when he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. These theophanies, these visions, these manifestations of God. And of course, the supreme theophany is Jesus. The one that Scripture says is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The one that John says of Jesus has made the Father known. In fact, Jesus himself said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so to this first question, the Bible honestly isn't all that concerned to answer how it is that the natural can see the supernatural. The scriptures seem to be really happy to just leave us with this answer. You see because God gives you sight. That's enough. You see because God gives you sight. That's why and that's how. But the second question is the question the scriptures are especially focused upon answering. Whether we may see God and live to tell about it. The question is, how is it that the impure can see the pure Son of God? How is it that the unholy can see the Holy One? How is it that sinful man can see God and live? Hebrews says that without holiness, no one will see God. Jesus said it more in a positive way. He said, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God." You see, it is only the pure in heart. It is only those who are holy who may see the, luck, the loving look of God's face. Only the holy. And that's trouble for us. That's a troublesome reality that is unless unless you've been made like the perfect pure holy son of god unless you've been made like jesus himself and see this is the incredible grace This is the extravagant love of the Father. That's Christ, even while we were yet sinners, he came to us and he redeemed us. He justified us before God. He adopted us as his children. He sanctified us, made us holy by the work of his cross. And he's poured out his Spirit to live in us, to constantly be at work in us, to transform us and to make us more and more into the image of his Son until he will fully, finally, and completely conform us to Jesus at his coming. It is in that day that we will be made holy as he is holy and we will see the Lord. We will be made pure in heart as Jesus is pure in heart. And we will see God. This is a future vision that we hold out in front of us that that is meant to inspire us, to transform us and to reorientate our lives around it. So we have to ask the question, are we eager to see Jesus? Is that our hope? Is that our future vision? You see, true eagerness for the return of Jesus, true eagerness to see Jesus face to face is an eagerness to be pure and to be holy so that we might know the extravagant love of our Father, not by faith, but by sight. And if we are so eager, then that will reorientate us today. If you are so eager, then, then we cast ourselves upon Jesus. We cast Ourselves upon Jesus. Because no matter what kind of person we are, as John would categorize us, no matter whether we are people who know God as Father or those that we don't, the truth is we will all, at the coming of Jesus, be resurrected. And we will all see Him. The question is will you be found in your sin, seeing, facing a terrifying judge? Or, will you be found in Jesus? Facing the extravagant love of a father. Cast yourself upon Jesus. Because Jesus has faced the terrifying wrath of God. He is the one who who took God's judgment so that you don't have to. His blood is what cleanses us from our sin. It it, it washes us whiter than snow. It, It purifies us from the stain of sin. He makes us holy. That we might look on the loving face of our Father. You see, faith and seeing are different, but they are not disconnected. Faith and seeing are not disconnected. Believe in him. Let this future vision, this future reality so transform you that you you cast yourself upon Jesus even today. And if we are so eager to see Jesus, to be like him, then we should be eager to live today in a way that he's called us to live. He says in verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The connection between the beatific vision and our earthly living is not a moralistic one. It is not that we live so that we might see him. It's that we live because we will see him. This future vision, it reorientates us and our our priorities for today. It changes our citizenship. It changes our relationship with the world and the things of the world. It corrects our loves. It amends our appetites. It transforms what we understand to be the definition of the good life. The extravagant love of the Father, this future vision, so reorientates our life. Believe upon Him, trust Him, live. In him and from him. Because seeing God, that's. <sighs> seeing God will change us. And don't we long for such a change? There was a time at the end of Moses' time at Sinai. He on this mountain went up, and God gave him uh, his, the word, um covenant. And at the end of that time, he was uh, about to leave to go down to make, make his way down the mountain. And he asked God two significant questions. Uh, before he went down to lead the people, he asked God first this question, that God would not send him down unless he would go with him, unless Yahweh would go with him. A smart guy. Because he understood that the, the world that he was going down to enter into, what it was like. And he knew that there was no hope at all unless the extravagant love of his father was going to be with him. And, and so Yahweh, he, he assured Moses. He said, I will go with you. And, and, and Moses, Moses goes with great confidence. Now, side note, every time I hear a benediction, this is the story I think of. Because I know that I am sitting or standing there and I'm about to go into a world in which there is no hope unless I have the extravagant love of my Father with me. And in that benediction, what I hear God say to me is, go, I am with you. The second question, that Moses asked was that Yahweh would show him his glory. To which God responds, look, I'll show you my goodness. I'll even proclaim my name to you, Yahweh. I'll be gracious. I'll be merciful. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so Yahweh took Moses and he put him in a a split in the rock and he, he veiled Moses' sight, and he passed by Moses. And as he passed by him, he got to the other side of him. He allowed Moses to see his back. Now, I don't know about you, but the, the most amazing earthly sight that I can think of is being on the summit of a mountain when the sun is rising. For me, it's just Breathtaking. Can you imagine seeing just the back of the glory of the Lord? Just how breathtaking that vision had to have been for Moses. And Moses makes his way down into the camp at the base of the mountain, and it says that the people were afraid to come near him. And the reason that they were afraid is because the skin of his face shone brightly. And it did so because he had been with God. What a picture. What a picture this is. If Moses is so transformed— By this veiled revelation of Yahweh, how much more glorious will we be when we see the unveiled face of Jesus in his glorious exaltation? Imagine what our faces will look like. Imagine what we will be like. We'll be like Jesus in glory. will shine like him. Now, Paul refers to this event in the life of Moses in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he makes an interesting comment. He says he, as to why Moses put a veil over his face, why he covered um, the, the shine of his skin, if you will. And this is what he wrote. He said, Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of of what was being brought to an end. They may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You see, Moses wore a veil so that Israel might not see the fading glory of his face. But for us, when Christ appears, we will have the eternal crown of unfading glory. Before the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we will be like Him to bask in the glow of His goodness, His extravagant love for all of eternity. An unimaginable joy. Let me pray. Father, we long we long to see the face of Jesus we long to be present with you in glory we long to know you not by faith but by sight how remarkable it is that you tell us that we know you now and so father help us as we rise up out of here to trust that you are indeed with us, that you go with us, you go before us. To have our lives be marked by your love, have our lives marked by our Lord Jesus Christ and his cross, his resurrection, his coming again. And Father, would you inspire a greater uh, hope within us as we face a world that's that is dark, that is difficult, that is painful, filled with tensions of all kind, that, that leaves us feeling hopeless. Let us see the light of your glory. Let us see you through your word, that we might be strengthened by it, that we might stand trusting you, living for you, that we might give you all honor and praise and glory, now and forever. We stand before you. Father, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand. So we receive the Lord's benediction. Now receive this. The Lord bless you and keep you.